Hello, and welcome to Flashes of DEI, a podcast where we explore topics and ideas related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. My name is Brie Molitor. Uh, my pronouns are she, her, and my position is a project director here in the Division of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. And my name is Katie Matice. I use they, them, their pronouns, and I serve as a director here in DEI. And today we're exploring race and in particular, what happens when we say that we don't see it. To help us do that, we brought along a couple fellow flashes. Would you mind introducing yourself to our listeners? Sure, my name is Andrew Barnes and I teach in the School of Multidisciplinary Social Sciences and Humanities. And I'm normally teaching international studies. I've also been a faculty affiliate in DEI for a couple of really exciting years now. And I use he, him, his pronouns. Yeah, my name is uh, Dr. Mike Daniels. I serve as the director of the E. Timothy Moore Student Multicultural Center. Um, I've been with the institution for about eight years now, and I use he, him, his pronouns. Bray and I are really excited to get to talk to y'all. So thank you for being here today and recording with us. And we are going to just kind of jump right into questions if you're ready to go. Absolutely. Awesome. So it'd probably be helpful to like start with some basics. Could you all talk about what we mean when we say race? Yeah, in my work, the the term race allows for us to better understand the identities of folks that are socially constructed, but also um, historically rooted um, in uh, different power dynamics, specifically Uh, Like our department, we serve African-American or Black individuals, uh, Native, Indigenous, First People folks, um, Latinx, Latine, Latino folks, and multiracial folks, Mm -hmm. um, meaning they can have one or any mix of those races. You know, how you identify racially could be your most salient identity. So you can identify as like a Black man, like I do. Um, or it could not be that salient to you, meaning that you don't really think about it that much. You know, when you name all your identities or you describe yourself to somebody, your race may not be the first thing that you say, um, which mm-hmm. is more commonplace to folks who are potentially white because white and the power dynamics of race is the mm-hmm. one that many folks don't have to think about too often. Right. I think that captures a lot of uh, what I think about when I think about race, too. When I'm asked, uh, one of the first things I say is that race is socially constructed rather than biological, which fits with what Dr. Daniels was saying. And that means that, you know, we can't you can't find it in DNA. Uh, it's not something a biologist is able to find, although folks spent a lot of time trying to find it. But it's nonetheless real because of the way society is structured. Um, so saying something is socially constructed doesn't mean it, it doesn't matter. Right. Socially constructed things can matter a lot. And race is one of them that does. Um, In theory, race was allegedly this categorization system supposedly based on skin color and other sort of physical characteristics, but it often falls apart in practice, Mm -hmm. right, which again is why we've got a history of folks trying to determine who fits in which category and arguing about it and so forth. If it were easy and natural, you wouldn't have to fight about it, right? Nobody has to argue about the law of gravity. 
with race that they, they were never able to make it stick. And second, uh, race very quickly comes to be used to ascribe other supposed traits to folks. You start out claiming it's based on physical characteristics. And then the next thing you know, people are talking about intelligence and honesty and hard work and all, right? So it very quickly bleeds into that, which is why some folks are leery of even mentioning it now, but that's got its own problems as well. I know I didn't hear the concept of race as a social construct until I came to college. And it was like one of those things that when you're in a classroom full of predominantly white students, everybody kind of goes, what? And then (laughs) as it explains more, you start to kind of pull it together. So I'm an optimist. When I first started to explore race in a more scholarly way, you know, I started to learn more about like how it was supposed to be used as a um, a way to help people, not help them in a sense of like altruism or anything like that, but like help identify people, make it easier to be able to distinguish between folks. And like many things, it becomes this distorted idea and people use, and I'm sure Andrew's going to share more about this, but the power dynamics that come into play of more than less than, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And how there's um, different inferences made on people based on their race. And and then there's this just complete um, perverted idea of how race should be used and taking away certain um, rights or privileges that should be afforded to people um, and adding on more barriers and burdens that shouldn't be placed on people because of their race. And that's why I ended up being so passionate about doing the work is because learning more of the history was like, okay, if this was just like a way to help people identify folks between one another and maybe even look into how different people may need different things, um, that would have been one thing. But we got to this place of like, Let's take away things from people and treat them worse because of their race. I didn't always, to Bree's point, I didn't always think about it that way either. Yeah. Dr. Daniels, to your point about like looking at the history of how race was constructed and what has it been used for, um, it can be very eye-opening, especially for folks who think that it is biological, realizing that it's not and realizing it was kind of made to justify a lot of horrible actions back in the day, which is not stuff that we tend to talk about when we talk about, you know, race as we understand it. It's not some taxonomy, right? That we just are separating or categorizing people into, and it's really clean. Like scientifically, there's very little correlation between anything biologic and there's definitely not any scientific proven causation your race can do this um you should have curly hairs a person from african descent like that's not true 100 percent of the time mm-hmm. so therein lies the biggest issue of where stereotypes can be created because you know there's more than likely not but not the absolute truth yeah mm-hmm. way more complicated than yeah. uh than folks think So I'm going to move on to our next question. And it's so funny. It starts with, we're going to build on these basics. And I feel like we've already kind of shifted away from the basics. basics. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, but I am going to give a quick disclaimer. So we're going to try and avoid using the common term for this ideology of not seeing race um, because it has ableist implications and it can be harmful to the disabled community. But we are going to use it once in this question so that people can recognize what we're talking about and become aware of how harmful the term can be. So the question is, 
What does being colorblind when it comes to race mean? So to me, what that means is insisting that because race isn't biologically real uh, and because categorizing people by race so often leads to discrimination based on race, then we should act as if race doesn't exist. Right. Uh, And in fact, to bring it up at all is itself racist. So we shouldn't Mm -hmm. do it. Right. Ignore it and it'll go away. It's not a real thing. And lots of problems were created in the past by paying attention to it and getting involved and trying to determine what it is and so on and so forth. So we should forget all of that. That was a horrible mistake in the past. Let's move on by forgetting it. And I think I would add to that, uh, I guess I would say the least harmful impact is for a, a group of people or an individual to avoid accountability and what the implications of race and racism can be. And its very most harmful impact is to discredit or discount, devalue um, people's experiences. Uh, Because if you are avoiding seeing the harmful outcomes of racism, then you're perpetuating a notion that, uh, that people should get over how they're treated, how they feel that they're treated, um, and, you know, gaslighting. So you sit here and you try to tell someone like, it's not that big of a deal. You're overthinking it. Like it, it was worse for your ancestors than it is for you. You should be happy that it, you know, it's not that bad and so on and so forth. And it's like, I, I still feel unsafe. I still feel attacked, whether it be verbally or not. Like there's both very covert and direct acts of racism that happen that are hard for me to act like I don't see or experience. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's those systemic ones that are preventing whole populations from being able to enjoy um, the the liberties of life, Um, whether it's anything from the economic disadvantages to, you know, just the, the social impact of those disadvantages. So, yeah let's like potentially talk about this a a little more, the impact of it, right? Because for a long time, um, and in particular, uh, for a long time, white people, and I'm assuming probably still today, have been taught to not see race. Like if you want to be the most inclusive person, don't pay attention to it. So I, I wonder if like, we could talk a little bit more about that. What do we miss? What do we risk when we don't pay attention to it? I wanted to pick up on the first part of your question, though, Katie, which is a lot of nice white people are taught and teach their children not to see race because they think that's the right thing to do. Right. And so you hear people say things like, I love all people. Right. I see people as individuals, not as members of groups, or I judge people on the content of their character, not the color of their skin, like misappropriating that line from Martin Luther King. I tell this story about myself, was born in Southern North Carolina and lived for the first 10 years of my life there, right? And this is the 1970s. So there are a bunch of really bad lessons I could have learned about race in Southern North Carolina in the 70s Mm -hmm. in a Southern Baptist household, right? I could have been told that interracial marriage was a sin, that God wanted the races in quotation marks separated or one to dominate over another. I wasn't taught any of that. And I applaud my parents for that. Right. You know, and so instead in Sunday school, we sang a song that I I don't know how many people will know, but uh, Jesus loves the little children. Right. And explicitly mentions different uh, colors of skin. And Mm -hmm. it's a much better lesson than some that I could have learned. You know, love your neighbor as yourself means everybody, including and perhaps especially people who look different from you. However, 
<laughs> and so that's all set up to the second part of your question, Katie, right? If you don't see race, then you don't see how people's lives are shaped by race, not because their race has anything to do with it, but precisely because of the social construction of race, how people get treated because of the boxes that other folks put them in. And even if you in a particular moment are not putting somebody in a box, they're living in that box no matter what. And Dr. Daniels has already mentioned, right, not feeling safe in certain spaces, not feeling like, you know, you are accepted into the group, except as sort of as an outsider. I want to sort of bring us from the idea that trying not to see race seems like a good idea and it's better than some things you can do. But what it prevents you from doing is seeing what's happening to people who aren't you. And I, I loved how you shared part of your story there, Andrew. I think that really helps paint more of a picture of, you know, to me of what children are are taught and how impressionable folks are at a young age. And I think how important it is for us as adults to be responsible in, in raising children. And and it is, it, it's taught to your to your point, Katie, like just as racism is a, is a learned behavior, there's ways to be racist in uh, negligence. And I think that's, mm-hmm. I think teaching young people to ignore parts of people's identity is negligence. I'm an analogy person, so I'm going to use two different analogies. Yeah. Why this is harmful and the impact of um, not seeing race can be harmful. First analogy, if you were to teach your children that if you see someone get into an accident or um, maybe someone's being assaulted, just to ignore it, is that polite? Mm. Most would say, no, that's not polite. You mm-hmm. should do something about it. Whatever it is, you can do something about it. You should. Being you know, um, victimized or you know, in a situation where someone's being harmed isn't a part of their identity, but that's what's happening, right? Race is a, it's a tool for harm. And so if you're ignoring that, then you're ignoring the experiences where they're more frequently being harmed. So it's not polite. You're teaching your children to avoid and ignore places where they can be more helpful. The second example I would use is most folks, their race to them, if it's a salient part of their identity, is also connected to, strongly to their culture. There's parts of my culture, right, that are tied to my race and like my experience in being the black man are some things that I'm very proud of, very excited about Mm -hmm. the way I celebrate certain holidays, the way I connect with people, my vernacular, my language, my everything about me, right? If someone were to be told to ignore someone's talents, some you have someone go on stage and they play a beautiful rendition of, I don't know, name your favorite song, and no one in the audience applauds, no one cheers, no one even recognizes that they're on stage. Is that polite? Mm-hmm. What's the value of ignoring, whether it's to recognize racism as a tool of harm, so ignoring someone's racism, ignoring the harm that they face, or it's probably tied strongly to their culture and it's going to be something that they're proud of and want to talk about and want to display and not have to hide and put in the background as part of their authentic So that's not polite either, right? You should give them space to do that and and applaud them in the ways that they're proud about themselves. That's a really good point. We're not just missing the harm that Mm -hmm. can happen because of it, but also the beauty or the celebration or the validation of somebody's identities and experiences in positive ways too. One of the things I notice in spaces is uh, folks will use 
terms that appear non-racialized, like professionalism or collegiality or mm. or whatever. And what it means is acting more and more like a stereotypical white man. It doesn't just mean you know being supportive and working with others and having good ideas. It means doing it in a certain way which may or may not have originally been intended to exclude certain people. But when you try to admit and welcome in and retain folks from new groups, you ought to be recognizing that you're you're trying to welcome in new ways to do that. Exactly. And if you don't, right, because you assume that professionalism looks a certain way, then you've lost something as an organization. And as an individual, you've done harm to other folks by not allowing them to express. One other uh, set of things, I've done an exercise in my classes and in other spaces where I ask people sort of, who are you? What are your identities? And the answer, of course, varies from space to space, right? At home, you might be still a child, even if you're 50 years old, you're the child at the <laughs> at the table with your parents, or when you're on campus, you're a student or your faculty member. In some spaces, you're more aware of your gender than others. If you go to worship, then you sort of recognize your religion. Uh, that all happens. But when I do that exercise, generally the pattern that I find and I ask students, which of these identities do you think about most? Or, or which ones do you do other people think about most when they categorize you? I find that white people don't think about race. Mm-hmm. Men don't think about gender. Cis people don't think about sexuality, right? Native English speakers don't think about their English speaking abilities. If you are a member of a dominant group, which is the pattern that's emerging there, then you don't have to think about that identity. And so it's easier for you to say, let's just not think about these categories, because as you go through life, you don't have to. It's important for folks in those categories to recognize that there are other people who don't have that ability. It's difficult to be a person of color in America and not know it mm. because you're reminded of it sort of everywhere you go. One of the first places this hit home to me was in a book that I read in the mid 90s by Ellis Coase called The Rage of a Privileged Class. And Ellis Coase is a black man who had done everything sort of right in quotation marks, right? He had gone to good schools. He had done well in school. He was a columnist at a national news magazine. And still, he was pulled over all the time. He was followed in stores, right? He was asked by the police, even in his own neighborhood, hey, are you lost, right? It just sort of everywhere he went, he was reminded that he didn't belong. There's no amount of hard work or money or degrees that was going to take that away. Uh, and so I recognized that is so not my life mm-hmm. right? because of my identities. Um, I rarely have to think about any of those categories. And basically everywhere I go, people treat me like I belong. And so mm-hmm. it's important for me to recognize that I have a privilege and advantage that I don't have to do that, but not everybody has it. If you're not seeing race, you don't see how people's lives are shaped by race. Yeah. And I think you bring up a good point too, when you're ta- when you had mentioned like professionalism and like what we're talking about when we use certain terms is that there are, it's, there's structures that we are working in and living in where as an individual, you might want to say that you're not seeing certain things or you're doing, but like people are living in these structures that very much were aware of all the different ways that they could try to exclude certain looks, certain behavior, certain people. I think that's a lot of different layers of kind of that individual level when you say you don't notice it, but then you're also not seeing it in the structures that we didn't build, but we are working in and now are also in our spaces working to dismantle and fix. And in the in the most kind way, Brianna, I challenge the last part of what you said, mm-hmm. because I think this conversation is highlighting how 
although people may not intentionally be building the structures currently, by ignoring race, you are mm-hmm. maybe inadvertently building and rebuilding the structures that perpetuate racism. And I think that's mm-hmm. why these conversations are important. It's important to pay attention to, notice, call out, identify racism, discriminatory behavior, practices, um, systemic ways that are oppressive to folks because of their race. And in a lot of the like engagements that I have with students or whomever it is, I talk about, I use the example of like an able-bodied person navigating a space that's created for able-bodied people. And then I, I tell them to start to pay attention to things that if they were not able-bodied, how would they be impacted? Mm-hmm. So I, like one of the biggest examples that I hear is like students like walking across campus, especially when it snows, um, you know, just like how slippery it is and all the, I'm like, yeah, it's pretty tough to get around campus when it snows because there's no clear path to where you need to go. Now think of that same structure, the physical structures that are preventing people from being able to enter, exit spaces, find the right pathways, as the same structure overlaid on race, mm-hmm. because that's usually historically marginalized populations, black, brown people, indigenous folks have to deal with all the time. They may be invisible, quote unquote, to like folks who, as Andrew said, don't have to think about that because it's, you know, they're in the dominant group, so they don't have to see those structures ever. So I think that's the the other piece of like how people are unintentionally perpetuating things. I think that's a really good point, right? Like the the not seeing it, you are intentionally or unintentionally keeping it going, right? Mm-hmm. You're maintaining this the current system in place. So by not seeing it, you are not making any moves to make things change. And I think you also brought up another point about how when you start to pay attention to how systems of oppression work, you can start to see it work around other identities, right? Mm -hmm. And so by not allowing yourself to see these systems, right, to see racism, you're probably preventing yourself to see fully how, you know, racism and ableism intersect. And how does that show up in spaces or in policies? Now, at this point, ideally, people will have an understanding about why it's important to understand what race is, why we should acknowledge it, why we should pay attention to it. So for the folks who are, okay, how can I start to engage a little bit more or take it further, right? I've already started a little, how do I take it further? What resources would y'all recommend for people looking to continue on that journey? Um, I would say there are plenty of great classes in the School of Multidisciplinary Social Sciences and Humanities that address <laughs> different aspects of this, uh, and the Department of Africana Studies as well. Uh, if if we're talking books, which is sort of what I do, uh, then I mentioned one already, Ellis Coase, The Rage of a Privileged Class. It's short, it's easy to read, but it's got great impact. Uh, one that's more recent is by Lisa Nunn called College Belonging. Uh, It was really fascinating to me how she found through interviewing college students on a number of questions, but one of them was how you experience the the campus in terms of its inclusivity. She found that the members of the majoritized groups were like, oh, yeah, we love diversity. It's great. Everybody's inclusive and it's all terrific. And members of uh, minoritized groups often felt like it's basically inclusive enough to make the majoritized groups happy. Mm -hmm. We still feel outside 
we still feel like there are occasions where the campus doesn't grieve with us. Something happens to our community, it really hurts deeply, and in two days, the rest of the campus is ready to move on, but we're still working through it. Uh, and even if we find a space where we can finally relax and not think about our identities, we're criticized for that because now we've gone to Black Students United uh, or something like that. And so we're just hanging out with Black students or we're just hanging out with Indigenous students or whatever. And that's seen as not inclusive. It's the only space we can we can fully relax and we're not allowed to go there without some sort of social penalty. And if you want to read something a little more academic, uh, Eduardo Bonilla Silva wrote the original Colorblind Racism, which does have that word in its title, but its uh, its findings are really super interesting. I always encourage people to do a self-reflexive exercise mm -hmm. to take stock and inventory in the ways that you may or may not have to think about race and what immunities that provides you or privileges that provide you and what implications that may lead to for you in life. I just say, just do that value free, right? Mm -hmm. Think about certain situations where that would come up when you apply for a job, preparing your kids for college, go to the doctor's office, when you shop at the mall, right? Mm -hmm. What's that experience like for you? Mm -hmm. Asking yourself, are any of these normal, uh, everyday activities inhibited by my race? Do I have mm -hmm. to think extra about it because of my race? Mm -hmm. Answer to those questions are no. Then you can start to think about, well, what if they were? Mm -hmm. What does life look like? How much energy do you think you would have to spend? If your kids got into an argument at school with their friends uh, and the teacher gives you a call, are you having to replay and play over what you're going to say to that teacher for fear of how your child is going to be treated after that? If your child is going to be kicked out of the school just mm -hmm. because of that? I have not yet thought of an example that has not happened to me or one of my friends since August, mm -hmm. I called upon the example of being a dollar general mm -hmm. in Jacksonville. Like that just happened. Mm -hmm. Do you have to worry about someone walking in and shooting you because of your race? And then basically leaving behind a trail that says like, yeah, they hated you before you were even born. Mm -hmm. You can read novels about other um, people's experiences, like Ta-Nehisi Coates, Between the World and Me's. I find that human nature, we low-key are self-involved. Like, mm -hmm. we're, we pretty much care about what's going on with us. So reflect where you're at and think about those things. And I feel like that might be a good place to start. Yeah. Taking all these really good resources, but kind of thinking about it on the other side, what are some resources for people who are dealing with obstacles related to others not seeing their race? If you're a student at Kent State University, you should visit the E. Timothy Moore Student Multicultural Center. Yes. Because <laughs> we will uh, support your racial identity in all the ways um, that we can and, and that you would like to be uh, supported. It, it's a powerful thing to have a space that is dedicated to making sure that you can show up as your full authentic self. And when that identity is not being valued by other people on campus, that we can help equip you with the tools and the practices that will allow for you to navigate and transverse um, a predominantly white institution. We deal in both the avoiding harm, creating change, 
you know, not burdening yourself to be the person that needs to teach and speak up all the time, but also like the practice of keeping your own peace. Mm -hmm. And there are other organizations on campus that are built around identities, uh, some racial, some sexuality, some religion, that sort of thing. Uh, And seeking out those spaces, uh, I pointed out before that Lisa Nunn found that some folks sort of receive social approbation for doing that. I'd recommend you ignore that. (laughs) Go find folks you feel comfortable with for all the reasons that Dr. Daniels was talking about. If you are in a space where that where it's not happening for if you're in a classroom, for example, and you're a student where you feel like your race has become part of your your professor's interpretation of you, um, you do have rights to raise that with their chair, with another faculty member, with somebody that you uh, trust. The ombuds. The ombuds, yeah. The ombuds person, right. Uh, I can't pretend it's easy or that it will get resolved quickly or anything like that. But there are some of us out here who are ready to help and listen um, and take you seriously. For the faculty and staff who are listening, like obviously the Division for Dorsey Equity and Inclusion is a huge resource along with human resources, uh, affinity groups that we have on campus, um, Pan-African Faculty and Staff Association, um, Latino Networking Caucus, the Men of Color Collective, the Women of Color Collective, the Asian and Pacific Islander uh, group. Thanks for being here and giving us time today. Thank you all so much. Good knowledge, good insight, and good resources. And we'll list all of them in our show notes. Really happy to have the chance. That was terrific. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate the invite. And thank you to everyone for tuning in and listening. If you're interested in learning more about us here in DEI, feel free to check out our website, kent.edu backslash diversity. And if you've got a topic you'd like us to discuss, feel free to email us at diversity at kent.edu or connect with us on social media at DEI Kent State across platforms. And we'll see you next month with a new episode. Bye. Bye. Outro music. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs)